0: Good morning, and uh, welcome, virtually I suppose. There's, yeah, there's only the people here are sitting all in this category, so I'm sorry, camera people, if I'm just staring over here the whole time. But that's okay. Uh, this morning we are <clears throat> continuing our series, "What God Has Promised," looking at the marvelous and extravagant things that God has proclaimed that we can hold on to as truth in the Word. And the promise that we're going to be looking at today is that we are being made holy through Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. But uh, before we jump right into the verse here, I want to give a bit of uh, context or walk us through a little bit of the letter of Hebrews uh, just to help us understand this promise better and the context behind it. Uh, the, the letter of Hebrews, we don't really know who it was written by, uh, but it was addressed likely to a group of Jewish Christians who knew the Old Testament law quite well, so when we read this letter, when we come in and just start reading through the, uh, the book of Hebrews, it's sometimes a little difficult to understand because uh, what the author is saying is filled with references to the law, to uh, stories and characters from the Torah, and most Jewish children had these memorized, but we in our modern day society don't and are a little less familiar with them, so uh, I'll be giving a little bit of context and understanding as as we're going throughout the passage here today. But uh, the, the heart of Hebrews boils down to the, the writer describing how Jesus is better or superior to any previous way in which God has revealed himself, and how, how Jesus is better than the angels, how he's better than Moses, how he's superior to uh, the Levitical priesthood, and a better sacrifice than anything that we could offer through the Old Testament law. And the author's purpose in describing these contrasts is to show us that Jesus is greater than all of these things, to encourage us not to turn our backs on him. Now, there are some incredible promises in the book of Hebrews, and Dustin is going to be walking us through another one next week in chapter 4. Um, but there are as well five very heavy warnings in the book of Hebrews. And if you've read, if you've read through them, then these warnings can make us quite uncomfortable uh, they can kind of feel like, uh, am I going to be okay in this? I mean, there's, in chapter 5, one of, the, one of the warnings says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened and fall away to be brought back to repentance. I mean, if that's not like the most nerve-wracking verse in the Bible, I don't know what is. Uh, and please don't turn your feet off when I read some of these warnings. Uh, I know these warnings are difficult, but the point isn't for them to make us afraid, it's, it's to help us realize how great Jesus is, to encourage us to continue pursuing the one who can fill us with hope and love in the midst of difficulty. To not give up our hope in Jesus when life becomes difficult, because Jesus is the greatest hope we can have in this life. Turning our backs on Jesus is foolish because he's so amazing. That's kind of the point that the author's trying to get across. And so, the book of Hebrews is a description of both how incredible Jesus is and how foolish it is to turn our backs on the most loving and merciful person to have ever walked the face of this earth. So that's, that's the context behind a bit of the promise that we're going to be looking at today. So uh, if you have your Bibles handy with you, uh, or you have a digital one as well, open that up and we will be turning to chapter 10 of Hebrews and reading the first 18 verses together. So Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 1 to 18. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were being offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the the Old Testament law, uh, in order to establish the second, the new covenant we have through Jesus. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all, day after day. Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when the priest, this priest, had offered for all one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. Jesus has promised us that we are being made holy. So what does that promise actually mean for us? Um, Why is it such an incredible thing that Jesus paid the sacrifice and that somehow we are being made holy through that? Um, I want to focus on three main blessings. So if you have a notepad and pen or pencil, uh, if you're a note taker or a jotter down of things, then uh, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, So first, one of the blessings that we, we understand from this promise is that we are free from having to earn our own righteousness. We don't have to try and attain our salvation on our own. Uh, The second blessing is that our consciences can be clean knowing that Jesus has paid for us and that we are made innocent. And third, uh, the third blessing of this promise is that sin makes our lives more difficult, but it can't separate us from Jesus. And I'll express uh, a little bit more detail through all these three. Uh, So first, because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, we are free from having to earn our own righteousness. Uh, back in 2017 November, I went deer hunting for the first time with my dad. And uh, after we you know, scouted out a lot of the land, uh, we figured out a good place to go hunting, found out where we could actually go hunting. Um, we put a lot of work into it, and eventually we did end up finding uh, a deer and shooting it. Now, up until that point where we actually did the hunt... Um, I was so focused on making sure that we could um, find the right spot, make sure there were deer there. They weren't going to run away or I wasn't going to spook them. And and I was so focused on these things that I didn't really think about the work that entailed once we actually you know, hunted the deer. Uh, w- how much work that was going to be cleaning and butchering the animal. And uh, it was quite a surprise for me because uh, I didn't think about how dirty I would get. I didn't think about how it would smell, how... Much there would be to clean up afterwards. I think my mom is still angry for the blood handprints on the side of the freezer. We clean them up, mom, it's okay. Um and don't worry, I'm not gonna go into much more detail, but the process definitely gave me a better appreciation for butchers and what they do, but it more importantly helped me appreciate the fact that we don't have to do this anymore as a regular practice in order to pay for our sins. Because in our lifetime, we've never had to follow the old testament law. We've never had to go back through the law and follow it letter by letter. And so we can miss out on the whole sacrificial and offering process that the Israelites had to go through as part of the law. And if you've read the book of Leviticus, it it describes in pretty graphic detail the sacrifices and how they were supposed to be offered. Um, I mean, for instance, if the Israelites sinned, uh, once a year they had to bring a sin offering and... um, So they had to bring a young bull that was without defect. Uh, The Levites would kill it. They'd wipe some of the blood on the horns of the altar. Uh, They would take certain portions of it and burn it in certain places. It was very specific. And, I mean, this wasn't the only sacrifice that was required. There was a different sacrifice or offering required if you touched a dead body, if you had a child, if it was the Sabbath. Uh, So you get this idea that every day there was some sacrifice or offering being made at the tabernacle. And it was difficult, messy, stinky work. And it was what their sin had required, though. Because the cost of any disobedient act of sin is life. The only payment for our sin can be life. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. After the fall of Adam and Eve, it says that God made them clothing out of the hide of an animal. God took a life in order to literally cover up their shame and nakedness. And this practice was carried on for hundreds of years after the law was given. As the author of Hebrews says, day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Day after day, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice. And yet it it still didn't really pay the whole price. Because the reality was is that even if you just brought your sacrifice to the Levites for them to make, uh, even if you literally just brought all of your offerings to Jesus or the Lord, you had to do it all over again if you made a mistake. Even if you walked out of uh, the camp uh, and did something accidentally sinful, you were just as guilty. You had to do it all over again, the same practice of sacrificing day after day, year after year. It, w- it was monotonous work that never actually accomplished any real lasting purpose. It, it, it's like the tale of Sisyphus in the Greek mythology. Um, there's a story of a king named Sisyphus who constantly tried to trick and deceive the gods. And as punishment for what he had done, uh, he was made to roll a large boulder up a hill continuously uh, for eternity. And as soon as the boulder reached the top the boulder would roll back down the hill and Sisyphus would have to roll it back up again, day after day. And it was the same task over and over again that didn't accomplish any real lasting purpose. And the sacrifices that God required as payment for the Israelite's sin were were true payment, but because we live in a world full of sin, those sacrifices can never actually make a lasting difference. Each time they had to turn back and offer those same sacrifices again and again uh, because they would turn their backs and a new debt was owed and they needed to make it all over again. Like, I'm, I'm saying it this way Do you guys, for you guys to understand how monotonous and how miserable this lifestyle would have been realistically because if it weren't for Jesus, this would be our reality. We would be paying the price for our sins. But thank God God that we have someone who is willing to make a lasting sacrifice on our own behalf. And the sacrifice made for you and me is amazing, not for just the fact that it's final and we don't have to make sacrifices anymore, but for the fact that we are made righteous, that we are made completely blameless in Christ. Think about that. We are made blameless in Christ. Nothing you have done in the past, no atrocity you could commit in the future can change that fact. Colossians 1 uh, verse 22 says that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus' death to present us as holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Without blemish and free from accusation. So why do we still try to earn our righteousness? by laying down his life as the payment for our sin that you and I have committed we have a clean conscience knowing that Jesus has made us completely innocent in the eyes of God yet we still do things for the sake of placing ourselves in right standing with him we we still turn our backs to a, a ritualistic religion where we just do things in order to put ourselves in good standing but this isn't helpful When we try to earn our salvation, we dismiss the fact that Jesus has offered us a free gift. And instead of having a real relationship with Jesus, we turn it into more of a business partnership. If we do these things and if we stop doing these things, then then we will be accepted. Then our boss, Jesus, will be happy with us and he's not going to fire us. And it's hard to break from that mentality. It's hard to break from this understanding that Jesus doesn't just want us to do good things. He wants our hearts, right? It's difficult to grasp that we are made holy without having to do anything but believe. But we still try to work for our salvation when we do tasks not out of the fullness of our heart, when we do things not out of the overflow of thankfulness of what Jesus has done in our lives, but out of the the shame-filled guilt or obligation that we feel. And so our faith is replaced with a sense of pride, thinking that I can accomplish this on my own. And fair enough, if I'm honest, those good deeds uh, feel good. I mean, that's why in our society we still see a bunch of people who don't know Jesus doing good deeds, because it feels good. I mean, if you, if you were to go on YouTube, um, and I searched it up this past week, uh, look up people giving to the homeless. Uh, and there's some, there's video after video, and it's incredible, and it's amazing, but if you'll notice when you watch those videos, they're not for the sake of actually helping people. They're not for the sake of making another person's life better off, although they are doing that, and nearly all of them, they're doing it for their own sake, their own sense of pride, making a video to show others how good of a person I really am, and The point isn't for us as followers of Jesus to just do good things anonymously. We are supposed to give without expecting any type of reward from people. But I'm not saying that the point... or I'm I'm trying to say that the point isn't just to do good things. God doesn't want your good things. God wants you. He wants your life. He wants to have a relationship with you where... He can tell you to build a boat big enough to house every animal, and you do it not because of the Instagram followers that you're going to get, not because people are going to think you're amazing and doing a great task for others, but because you trust that Jesus has a good reason for leading you. He he wants to have a relationship with you like Abraham, where he can tell you to get up and move off to a distant country where you don't know people. Not so you can brag to others about how you've helped in, in different places of the world, but so that you know who he is and are willing to go because he calls you to. But we still try to go our own way because I think that the voice of guilt is louder sometimes. Uh, a few months ago, one of my friends, he, uh, were, we were talking about our faith, and as we were talking about it, we, he asked me the question um, just about Bible reading, and he specifically asked me if Every single time that I read my Bible, if I got something out of it, if, if uh, I felt Jesus was speaking something specifically to me or the Spirit was revealing words that I might understand, and as I thought about it, I realized, no, not every single time that I pick up my Bible and read it do I find something profound or even meaningful at times. And so I told him this, and in, in response, he asked me then why I still read my Bible on those days where I didn't get anything out of it. Or get anything out of it. Uh, and as I thought about it, partly I, I did recognize I continued to read because keeping up with habits is a good thing and, and disciplines are a good thing. Uh, and I knew that it would change my heart, even if I didn't see it in the moment. But I realized as well that part of the reason I kept reading my Bible was a sense of pride. Because I thought that if I missed a day of my Bible reading, that somehow I would be unable to hear from God that day, or that he wouldn't be able to work in my life, that I would cause a rift between himself and myself, or, or at times I wouldn't even read my Bible with intent to hear from God or with any interest, really, because it was just making sure that I had done a task that day. As a Christian, can I be good with myself knowing I didn't read my Bible? No. So I read my Bible only for the sake of accomplishing a task and getting it done. I was a good Christian today, I can check that off in my box. It wasn't about hearing from Jesus or or having a relationship with him at times. It was about doing things that made me feel better so that I wouldn't feel as guilty. Now, I'm sure we've all been there. Regardless of whatever reason we give to guilt ourselves into doing the right thing, whatever it is, Bible reading, serving others whether it's under the guise of separating us from God or, or making us a better Christian, if our faith is works-based, if, if we try to earn our salvation, if the hope that we have is in our own actions, we become exactly like the Pharisees. We do the right things, but we hurt other people in the process, which is why Jesus was so angry with them. They, they did all the right things, uh, but they neglected to have a relationship with Jesus. They didn't know who he was, and we can fall into the same trap. We, we help others out of guilt, not compassion. We do things that seem good without caring about how it's going to affect other people in the outcome, in the process of it. We become angry with people and guilt them because we ourselves feel guilty and don't know what to do with it. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that if you read your Bible and don't get anything out of it, it's bad. I mean, welcome to the club Um, And I'm not saying you should give up praying or reading or doing good things because it's not doing anything for you to give up on certain disciplines and habits. I'm not saying that. Because there will be plenty of days where God seems distant. I mean, Jesus, who was God, felt abandoned by God. It's kind of an enigma you can wrap yourself around. But the more you remind yourself of truth... The more you pour your heart out to God in prayer and understand the promises that are written in the Bible, the more you will be able to rely on him. The more you can stand firm on the promise that Jesus will speak when you listen and that he won't abandon you. It's about being led by the spirit instead of being led by the voice of guilt. And if you're curious as to which voice you listen to more, a good litmus test is to look at your own actions.